From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower, reporting today from Malvern, Pennsylvania. Lauren Hepler is at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On today's edition, the latest from Al Gore, a new renewable energy buyers alliance, private equities sustainability revolution, and the shortest path to carbon pricing. We are right on the money this week on 350. It's May 13th, Friday the 13th, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm talking from Pennsylvania, as I said, and uh, in the Green Biz studio, it's Lauren Hepler, senior editor. Hey, Lauren. Hey there. You said Malvern, Pennsylvania? Where the heck is that? The heck, it's about uh, 30 or 40 miles west of Philadelphia. And um, this is the uh, site of uh, this week's or one of one of this season's uh, um, meetings of the Green Biz Executive Network, which is that peer-to-peer learning group we have. About we have about 22, 23 companies here for the last 24 hours of uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and uh, talking about uh, risk and having some great presentations. And uh, and uh, th- Wednesday night we had a great meal at a farm called Wybrook Farm, which is in itself a story, a former Philadelphia bond trader who took his uh, money and bought some land that was scheduled to be developed back during the uh, the, the real estate crash and, and took it off the market and turned it into an amazing farm. So oh. we had dinner there. And, um, was uh, the food great... good? It was good. I mean, it's a, they, it's a um, uh, meat farm, which is he raises cattle, chicken, pigs, and sheep, and so and butchers them, and and um, has a meat store and everything. And he didn't really want to be in the restaurant business, but he started with a little restaurant. Uh, it's called Wybrook Farms, and um, uh, it turns out that people really wanted to come eat there, and, uh, and I can understand why. Um, but the other reason uh, we're at Malvern is that it's, it's being hosted by one of our member companies, which is a sort of one of the biggest companies that no one's ever heard of called Saint-Gobain, which you just to spell it, it's like Saint, S-A-I-N-T, Gobain, G-O-B-A-I-N. Um, and Saint-Gobain is a really interesting company that, uh, like I said, is generally unknown there. For the, one of the most interesting things about them is that they are, uh, well, last year was their 350th anniversary Whoa! Yeah, in fact, their um, their charter, the original corporate charter, was signed by Louis XIV, Louis the Fourteenth. So, I mean, not a lot of companies can say that. In fact, this may be the only one. Mm-hmm. And so, they've been talking about how risk impacts their business, participating in those conversations, or what are some of your takeaways? Well, first of all, just we got to learn about the company, which uh, I mean, Saint-Gobain is the world's largest building materials company. I mean, who knew? Uh, and they're uh, have just uh, uh, they make a whole bunch of things. And besides building materials, um, you know, abrasives and some some really high performance materials that go on spaceships and all kinds of things. They have hundreds of thousands of products. But what's cool about this headquarters is their North American corporate headquarters is that it's largely made from a lot of their materials. And it's a really, one of the nicest workplaces I've ever seen. And and apparently one of the healthiest workplaces, it's a double platinum or that's about to be a double platinum lead, which is where you get lead for both the outer shell and the in, interior. Um, uh, and uh, so they get both inside and outside. 
Um, but it was really cool to learn about the company, what it's been doing, and, and sort of how it's really been embedding sustainability. So it, uh, that's one of the bonuses of of having these meetings is not just the great conversations that we have about these 20 companies, not just the amazing meal we have in the middle of it, but also uh, the companies, the headquarters that we get to visit. I'm not even sure I knew double lead was a thing, but that's awesome. We'll have to get some pictures. Yeah, double platinum is the term. I guess you could go double gold or something too. But uh, yeah, I thought that was only for the record business. Mm-hmm. Well, while you've been on the road, we've also been busy back on the home front. So let's jump right into the weekend review. So one of the stories we've been following consistently over the last couple of years is the evolution of the commercial renewable energy market. And this week, we had a new player enter the scene with a lovely acronym, REBA, that is the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance, that's bringing together companies like Facebook and Microsoft with nonprofits like the World Resources Institute, BSR, and the World Wildlife Fund's Renewable Energy Buyers Principal Group. Yeah, this is a really interesting topic, and uh, as, you, as we've been covering for a long time, which is that now that renewables are so affordable and, and have become really the fastest growing energy resource um, in the U.S. and outside the U.S., is how you know how do we get companies on this and, and the, the, some of the biggest energy buyers uh, in the world sourcing this kind of energy? And and because there's so many different ways to do it in terms of on-site or off-site or buying uh, you know, power purchase agreements, PPAs, as they're called, or virtual power purchase agreements, VPPAs. And, and it's just really a little bit crazy and confounding, uh, even for the people uh, who are in the middle of it. And of course, there's always the question, do I do it now or do I wait? Because it'll probably be cheaper. Um, and, and so that's great that so many organizations and, and are coming together for this kind of thing. Yeah, and it's interesting that this seems to be tying together several groups that are already working in this space. Uh, RMI already has its business renewable center, and like I said, the World Wildlife Fund's Renewable Energy Buyers Principles group. So it's nice to see sort of connecting the dots here. And I also saw that there is a specific quantitative goal associated with REBA, which is to help facilitate and deploy 60 gigawatts of new corporate renewable energy capacity by 2025. Yeah, that's real uh, a lot of energy. One of the things that will have to happen here, and I and it's unclear because a lot of the companies that were present at the launch and 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 mentioned, um, you know, as as part of the founders are, you know, companies that we know well and people we know well, like Bill Weil from Facebook and um, Brian Janis from Microsoft. You know, the, these are of course companies who have been at this for a long time, and and so the big question for me is how many new companies can they bring, call, bring into this? They talk about, uh, you know, 60 companies are already members of one of these groups, and that's a nice little bandwagon they've got, but it's really about, you know, bringing a much, much bigger dozens, hundreds, maybe even thousands more companies into the fold. And and that's going to be the real test of whether this works or not, or is this just the same groups talking to each other, or is are we really going to start to see a much bigger uptake of corporate renewable energy buying? That also reminds me of another story we had this week from our senior writer, Barbara Grady, who was taking a look at another market that has been sort of evolving over time that many argue are just now sort of really coming into its own. That's this whole space of sustainable products. So not just the idea of embedding sustainability into your operations, but fully 
integrating the concept into the products that you're selling. So Barbara took a look at companies, obviously GE with their eco-imagination is sort of one of the big players that's been in this space for a while, but also at what 3M, Johnson & Johnson, and other Fortune 500 companies are doing to sort of really up the ante on their product production. And this is a really hard thing to measure. We try to do it every year in the State of Green Business Report, and Barbara in her story uh, cites the, some of the data from TrueCost and quotes uh, our good friend James Salo, the Vice President of Research and Strategy at TrueCost. Uh, but, you know, how do you determine what's a green product? So so a hybrid car, sure, that's a green product. But how about a non-hybrid car that has a uh, some some high-performance uh, improvements that dramatically improve its energy efficiency or its fuel, fuel economy? Um, you could say the same thing with, a, you know, a wallboard insulation or something else that isn't specifically marketed as green but all of a sudden is – has a higher performance than in the past. You know, higher performance and improvements and new efficiencies, that's just part of innovation. We've seen that with everything that, you know, certainly all the the information technology, you know, keeps getting better, faster, cheaper, and more, you know, lot better battery performance and, and longer lasting and all kinds of things. So that's part of the innovation cycle. So, you know, measuring this stuff is kind of interesting. But I think part of that is that a number of companies are finding ways to do that and reporting on it, which never happened before. The thing I thought was interesting, Barbara points out that the top two industries, when you look at sort of the percentage of companies that report profits generated from the sale of green products, the number one is actually the food and beverage industry, which will be we'll actually have a story coming up next week. I'm working on sort of about the growth of the organic supply chain and sort of how you measure sustainability in that space. But the second one was telecommunications and telecom equipment. Equipment. Uh, TrueCost estimates that about 63% of telecom companies reported generating profits from selling or using sustainability products. So like you said, telecom, that's not a super obvious space in terms of how you integrate sustainability. Um, but it'll, I'll be curious to see sort of uh, as we hear more about the specifics of these business models. Yeah, what are they taking credit for? Are they taking credit for people talking on the phone versus driving somewhere? Is that a greener product? I don't know. That's where this stuff gets a little bit squishy. But also Johnson & Johnson is interesting. So that's a different kind of company, obviously, in the healthcare field. So it just really shows that any business can start to track what the value is uh, for of sustainability, not just at improving the bottom line, but in growing the top line. So Barbara Grady did a piece recently about uh, what's happening post-Paris. It's called The World is Moving on the Paris Accord, but not fast enough. And this comes from an event she attended recently in uh, Washington called the Climate Action 2016 Gathering. It was hosted uh, by leaders from the United Nations, the World Bank, and a, and a number of large NGOs like the World Business Council on Sustainable Development, the We Mean Business Coalition, Compact of Mayors, and others. And, you know, starting to look at, at what, you know, and this is what so much of the conversation is about now is that, okay, you know, Paris, we've signed it now, 175 nations, more to come. Uh, now, <laughs> let's get down to business here. And, and really, what is the role of business and how can business step up its game? And so that's an interesting conversation. 
Yeah, you can hear Barbara was in D.C., but apologies, you can hear lovely downtown Oakland jackhammering in the background on my end. But uh, one of the things I thought was great that Barbara pointed out in terms of sort of this issue of going from commitments and new goals that were set in the run up to Paris and sort of translating that into concrete action was a statistic she pulled out that more than half of all new investment in energy projects globally has gone to renewable power since the start of 2015. And that marks the first time that investment in renewables has beat out the money flowing to coal and gas-fired electricity. So that obviously ties in with what we were talking about earlier with REBA and sort of moving the needle on renewable power, sort of greasing the wheels to move these things forward with utilities and other stakeholders that are going to sort of play a starring role in this transition one way or another. One of the things that's really encouraging and was part of the event was is the role of cities. Uh, in fact, they had the mayor uh, Hidalgo of Paris and, and Mayor Kasim Reed of, of Atlanta, who we had on the Verge stage uh, last year, and and talking about the the opportunities, uh, significant opportunities to reduce their carbon footprints, and since that's where most people live now, uh, that's a, a significant thing. And uh, Mayor Reed announced that he and some other mayors had were launching a new effort uh, called the Coalition for Urban Transitions. 80 cities that are uh, committing to help one another in adopting clean transportation and other sustainable uh, initiatives and to share best practices. And so, again, uh, this is very encouraging that um, that so many cities, just like so many companies, are now coming together. It's You really feel the momentum picking up. In addition to all the mayors in attendance, Barbara also had a chance to catch up with another familiar former government figure, and that is former Vice President Al Gore. Um, Here's what he had to say about the post-Paris march toward renewable energy. Infrastructure that the country needs, which means decarbonization, uh, renewable energy, batteries, uh, energy storage, sustainable forestry, sustainable uh, agriculture. This is the opportunity to save the economy, and then and a side benefit would be to save the future of civilization. And our whole mission has been to prove the business case that actively uh, integrating sustainability, not just as a checklist, you know, not just as a negative screen or a positive screen, but really uh, instituting it fully throughout the investing process can actually improve returns. And our mission is to establish it as best practice and to thereby put pressure on other investors to fully integrate sustainability. And there's a tremendous amount of movement in that direction. The, uh, the Institute on Sustainable Investing at Morgan Stanley that you had is a great example of it. And there, there is now a, a very powerful movement. And of course, uh, uh, the owners of capital uh, deploy you know, many orders of magnitude, the money that governments deploy. And when it is deployed according to criteria that more uh, nearly match the reality we're facing, uh, then we're, we're going to have sustainable capitalism over time.
This week, we also had an update from the world of finance. Our reporter Keith Larson took a look at the evolution of the private equities stance on sustainability. And while that doesn't seem like a supernatural pairing, um, it, this is actually a story that goes back at least a decade to 2006 when the United Nations released their principles of responsible investment. So joining us now to talk this through and what's changed is Keith Larson. How's it going, Keith? Good. How are you, Lauren? Good, good. So talk to me a little bit about this story. What got you interested in this topic and sort of the private equity specific piece of sustainable investing? For this one, actually, I got a pitch from from Carlisle Group, and I thought it was, it seems just unusual, uh, just a, a weird pairing, sustainability and private equity. I mean, it doesn't, the two don't seem to go together. You know, private equity is, is inherently private. Uh, they don't talk a lot about what they do. So I thought it'd be kind of a, a neat thing to check out. So what are Carlisle and any of their competitors up to in this space? Yeah, so in the past four years, uh, or three or four years, they, they've done some good work. They've uh, There's still a lot of companies in, in private equity that aren't releasing a sustainability report. Um, so the fact that there are Carlisle and uh, KKR are releasing sustainability reports and making it available on their websites – and that's been their big push to to make stuff uh, more available as to as to what they are doing. And they are hiring uh, chief sustainability officers. And um, a lot of their focus is really not on what the company itself is doing, but what uh, what the companies they have under management are doing. And um, especially in terms of like operational efficiencies is their, is their main uh, focus. Yeah, I saw you noted that Carlyle is the largest private equity company in the world with $178 billion in assets under management, and that they released their first set of guidelines on responsible investing back in 2009. So did you get to dig into sort of what those guidelines are and sort of how they're taking these ideas to their portfolio? Yeah, I mean, they, they've, uh, if you just look at the reports, they've, they've definitely evolved. But I, I'd say the biggest stress uh, has been has been definitely like operational efficiencies, um, you know, energy efficiency. And that's that kind of goes hand in hand with what private equity does is to you know, buy companies, uh, make them more efficient through maybe through cost cutting or turn them private, uh, make them efficient through cost cutting and then make them public again. That seems to be aligned with what, what they do already. Yeah, that's interesting, sort of wringing costs out, but doing that through energy or things that happen to be sustainable also. We'll be curious to see. Right. Any, yeah, we talk a lot about sort of energy price volatility, and obviously with oil prices low right now, there might not be that financial imperative. But um, did you get it all into sort of the short-term versus long-term issue? I know this is sort of a perennial thing when you're writing about finance. A lot of times the block is that the the folks focused on the bottom line or maybe looking more at the next quarter and not at sort of long-term energy costs. Um, so curious how you've seen that dynamic play out. Well, that, that's a really good point because with private equity, you have like, you're looking for a term of three to seven years, which may not seem that long, but you know, when you're talking about the rest of finance or, or really any, any corporate sustainability move, you know, that that's longer than what the longer time frame than what a lot of other industry scenarios are looking at. So you have more time to, you know, invest capital and make those changes and you don't have to receive those returns um, that short. But I mean, I guess it does, you know, if you're looking at some of the larger, you know, carbon neutrality or 
or, you know, carbon or uh, mitigating climate change that are really can be time intensive and, and inefficient. I guess that, I mean, that just is an inherent challenge, but, but surprisingly, you know, it is a longer time frame than, uh, you would think at first glance. Mm-hmm. And I do know, I think I've heard a fair amount of people talking about power purchase agreements for solar or wind stretching 10 to 20 years. So it seems sort of on the bubble of that, just getting beyond that seven year time frame. but whether you can right. sort of make that work still, that's interesting. Um, I'm also curious, you, you mentioned that sort of uh, a lot of private equity firms aren't really talking about sustainability. So curious more if you could uh, just delve into sort of how these companies are evolving in the way they do or don't speak publicly about these issues. Yeah, that that's a really good point. Uh, there's a lot of companies that aren't uh, talking about it because they're they're private companies and they don't they don't have to release anything and they don't really need to and they don't you know, private equity is kind of a weird, it's like a black hole of information where you don't really, they don't really talk about what's going on and, and they don't really want to. And you're also making so many acquisitions and stuff like that, that it is, it is really hard for them to, you know, keep disclosing this stuff and talking about it. Uh, so I think what they've tried to do in their sustainability reports is like highlight, you know, certain number of companies and, and this is what they've done and um, focus it under three areas like operational efficiency, uh, labor force issues. So um, it's definitely good that they're disclosing more of this. And I think I think one of the things that this exemplifies that is uh, in the UN principles of responsible investing framework for how private equity companies should incorporate these issues. There was there's initially only six people, six, six firms assigned on 2006. But now there's there's over a thousand signatories in, in 2012. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I guess it shows they're taking it more seriously. Is there any indication of why that is? Because you point out that there are few regulatory requirements for private equity firms to disclose, disclose this sort of stuff. So is it a matter of, we talked about with efficiency, there's a potential financial upside, but with labor or other issues, is that risk or what's spurring them to even talk more or look more at this? Yeah, this is uh, this is kind of, it seems to be a common trend amongst Everything in finance is it's, it's really being driven by large pension. Maybe not everything in finance, but large pension funds are, are asking for this information. And, and especially investors. Right. Institutional yeah. investors that have a lot of money, uh, especially European investors, are, are seeing this these as, uh, you know, financial risks. They care about them. And, you know, they're they want to know what's going on. They, they just want to know this information. Um, and so. Uh, whenever you have that much money, I guess, going after that information, they're, they're going to deliver it. Yeah. And that also goes to another topic you've covered a fair amount, which is this whole idea of stranded assets, which is sort of the ultimate manifestation of risk and climate change in the financial world. Uh, so it sort of dovetails with the whole keep it in the ground movement and this idea that there may be the potential down the road for sort of mass write-offs of coal or oil or other fossil fuel assets that are haven't been extracted yet. Um, so do you think, is there a way in which all of this ties together or what's sort of your general prognosis for how the financial services industry is looking at sustainability at this point? You know, people people are really starting to become concerned about these issues, and they're wanting more information about it. And especially, they want um, 
they don't want these firms to be uh, involved in, in coal. And uh, they just, from from what I've, from talking to people, they just see that as a, a dead man walking. Um, but but I haven't, I don't know, I haven't I haven't really seen that that tie in. Um, to be honest with you, mm-hmm. more just sort of some institutional investors, especially the ones in Europe that are starting to broach that issue more generally. So we'll be curious to see if that does right. circle down into the private markets at all. Well, well, I guess I guess I guess the thing is that they are seeing these as financial risks and they are seeing them as material risks. And uh, th- I think that that's a key distinction um, is, is that they see these as financial risks now. Uh, and especially in Europe, they these are these are you know viewed by regulators as financial risks, whereas here it's that's not really the case. So I think that that's going to be a concerning thing to watch um, in the next couple of years how regulators look at these risks, mm-hmm. uh, environmental risks as financial risks. Well, that's an area we're actually about to jump in with the perennial fight over carbon taxes. So in the meantime, thank you so much reporter Keith Larson for joining us. Thanks for having me. mentioned at the top of the show, our senior writer Barbara Grady was in Washington, D.C. last week for a big event going on as a follow-up to the Paris Climate Talks. Barbara is joining us now to tell us about what she learned and specifically what might be in store for the future of carbon pricing. How's it going, Barbara? Good. How are you, Lauren? Good, good. So tell us a little bit about what this event was and sort of how carbon pricing figured into the equation. Sure. So the name of it was the Climate Action 2016 And it basically was for people to talk about what has been done since the Paris Agreement was reached in December in Paris. And a lot of it was about compass have been primed, things are really ready, but action hasn't started that much. There's many, many commitments on the table. And and Ban Ki-moon, for one, was saying, like, we got to go, we got to move on this. So a big factor in getting companies to move or governments to move is putting a price on carbon. Mm-hmm. And this is a perennial issue that's sort of come up as uh, obviously it seems politically very risky at best to go for implementing a carbon tax, um, which we'll get into the politics of it in a minute. But it is also something where we've seen companies across industries from fossil fossil fuels to the tech industry implementing internal prices on carbon and then some companies also adhering to external regimes. So what did you learn in terms of what companies are already doing in this space? So I interviewed Nigel Topping, who's the CEO of We Mean Business Coalition of, you know, like some 400 companies and um, 183 investors who are all about sustainability. And 
He talked about the importance of carbon pricing and how both companies and investors are saying, we need this to go forward. And the interesting thing is World Bank has now 1,000 companies that have joined it in saying, we want a price on carbon and we commit to certain actions to bring that about. Mm-hmm. And we, when we've written about this in the past, I know there's sort of a range of companies. CDP has some good data on this. There are some like in the tech industry. Um, I know Microsoft uses sort of a single digit, like a, around a $6 fee last time I checked, uh, whereas fossil fuel companies are up in the $80, $90, range sometimes. So did, yeah. did that come up? Nigel made the point that there's like two lists, essentially. There's a thousand companies who have gone on the public record saying we want a price on carbon. Then there's close to a thousand companies who are doing it internally in their own accounting, like you said, Lauren, including Microsoft and some oil companies. And that number is very close to a thousand. And the significance is of doing it internally is that it means they expect carbon pricing to be part of the future. In, in the political policy arena. Here's what Nigel said about the types of companies involved and why it's important to them. There are a thousand businesses who signed um, a World Bank statement about in September 2014 saying that they were in favor of carbon pricing. There's also a thousand companies who report to CDP, Carbon Disclosure Project, that they either already are or are planning to implement an internal carbon price. And they're kind of related, but the, the, the latter suggests that a lot of companies are expecting carbon to be priced. Why would you do it otherwise? So they're using it to, to steer their capex away from high carbon and towards low carbon. And, uh, you know, and, the, and the, the majority of the companies that are pricing are using a price of $40 or more. If you're investing for 25 years, you need, you need to make an assumption about what the price is going to be over the... Over the life. So I think that's, that's one of the reasons is these, a lot of these are big capital decisions. If you're a, a manufacturing company, then just factoring it into your capex can, for example, tilt your capex towards energy efficiency. It's interesting, this issue of carbon pricing and sort of the business rationale for it, I think, has sort of been in the public sphere for a while now. It was certainly a big topic of conversation in Paris during COP21, but sort of the one sticking point that always brings the conversation to a screeching halt is the U.S. political climate um, and sort of the very usually long, pretty partisan lines, sort of recalcitrance to any sort of proactive climate regulation. Um, so did sort of the, the politics of all of this come into play, being that you were in the nation's capital for all of this? Yeah, there were a few politicians there. But in particular, in that interview with Nigel Topping, he spoke about politics. And he said his conversations with Republican congresspeople and Republican senators, you know, aren't that different from conversations with Democrats. And in particular, he has had conversations where people have said, why do we have a steep corporate tax? Why don't, why do we tax payroll? Why don't we get rid of those and instead tax carbon pollution? So a sort of a trade on things you're being taxed on potentially. Yeah. So the, what's being said there is we would be willing to be taxed on carbon if we didn't pay these other taxes. I mean, it's kind of like the under, the between the lines. I, Right. You know, between the lines, that seems to be what people might be 
thinking or saying. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, no surprise that sort of go for go for lower taxes might make this more palatable for people, but it would be interesting to see what that does to the overall revenue picture. I guess that would mean you're sort of shifting yeah. where the money goes. Um, and then obviously the ultimate upshot is what a carbon tax in any form, regardless of the other political horse trading that goes on, whether that does in fact discourage the use of fossil fuels and sort of the shift towards renewables. Yeah. Another piece of it was talking about the price that would be needed in carbon pricing to actually push that shift. Mm -hmm. And um, the numbers 30 and 40 a ton came up, but I don't know that we have any documentation on what actually works. Yeah, that definitely seems like a moving target, what that tax should be. Yeah. So here's what Nigel said about some of those conversations with politicians. What most businesses want is clarity of the direction of travel. Mechanisms that don't change every political cycle or every year. Um, intelligent use of proceeds. You know, we have in, in, in BC, we have $30 a ton. The, the, the proceeds of the carbon tax there have all gone to reduce income tax and corporation tax. So, I mean, I'm talking to some Republicans here who are like, we, we need fiscal reform, right? We're, we're, we're taxing the things that are most important, jobs and profit in the economy. And we're not taxing the things that are causing damage, that, 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 which the taxpayer then has to, has to pay. Policymaker theory 101 is that all business is against all regulation, always, especially taxes. But actually, in private dialogues with business leaders talking to policymakers, we've, we've had policy, business leaders consistently saying, basically, read my lips. I am saying, we want you to tax us. You have to do this. It's the only way we can make this transition. You know, we have the investment power, we have the innovation power, but you have to put us on the kind of fiscal track, which will allow us to use our capital and skills to drive the economy in the direction which we all know it has to go in. So it's a very rare thing, and it's and it's from and the, and the, the other thing that really changes is every sector. It's consumer goods, it's IT, it's banking, it's oil and gas, you know, that it's electricity generation. They're all saying. You have to price the externality. We're in those countries where we've got prices, now we need to know what's the trajectory for getting to $30, $40, $50. So in some countries you've got them, like in the UK we've got a floor price. The, the, the French are talking about introducing a corridor idea where you have a, a, a lowest price and a highest price, so that, and then the market mechanism in between. That means you know the worst-case investment scenario. Yeah. Um, you know, California's got a floor price, as you know, that yeah. is ratcheted up by, by inflation plus 3%. Um, but what we really need is, is um, I've just been talking to some Republicans who say we need, you know, we should have thirty-five dollars a ton in America, um, and then if we recycled half of that, we could reduce corporate tax rates from thirty-five percent to twenty-five percent. Well, we'll have to wait and see, sort of where these prices land on the spectrum of zero dollars all the way up to a hundred dollars, somewhere in there. And not to mention the political part of all of this. But thank you so much, Barbara Grady, for joining us. You're welcome. Have a great weekend. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You'll always find links to the organization's stories and other things that we talk about in, the, in each episode. Just go to greenbiz.com slash 350. Thanks, as always, to podcast director Soraya Melconian. Please send us your feedback, ideas, your comments. We'd love to hear them at 
350 at greenbiz.com. And please subscribe to Green Biz 350 on iTunes and wherever else you look uh, for uh, podcasts. And you can find it every Friday morning on greenbiz.com or in our daily email newsletter, Green Buzz. But, but by whatever means necessary, please join us again next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. For all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, have a great day. 